Yes, welcome everyone. We are in the post-human era. What does this mean? What does it mean to be post-human? We are going to explore this fascinating, inspiring and exciting notion in our podcast, Post-Humans. Plural because we are going to interview scientists, artists, philosophers, scholars, and everyone who is engaging with this notion and who is helping us to understand more thoroughly and more deeply what does it mean to be post-human in the 21st century. So please be ready for a fascinating journey into the post-human. Dear Posthumans, welcome. I'm co-director Julian Boylan. In this episode, what is posthumanism? Science, technology, philosophy, a way of living? In the episodes to come, you'll hear from scientists, philosophers, authors, and even a presidential candidate. Posthumanism seems to be a bit of everything. This podcast will explore this wide-ranging topic from a variety of perspectives. To help define what posthumanism is and how to become posthuman, I'm here with the host of Posthumans, Dr. Francesca Ferrando. Hi, Francesca. Hi, Julian. That's uh, what a wonderful way to introduce the topic. And thank you so much for being part of this project. You know, your insights and presence have been extremely precious. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. A little introduction. Francesca Ferrando teaches philosophy at NYU Liberal Studies, New York University, a leading voice in the field of posthuman studies and a founder of the Global Posthuman Network. She's been a recipient of numerous honors and recognitions, including the Cianti Prize with the acknowledgement of the President of Italy. She has published extensively on these topics. Her latest book is Philosophical Posthumanism, published by Bloomsbury last year. In the history of TED Talks, she was the first speaker to give a talk on the topic of the posthuman. Us Magazine Origins named her among the 100 people making change in the world. So I think to find out what posthumanism is, a good place to start is at the very beginning. What does it mean to be human and how has the definition of what is human changed throughout history? Thank you so much for your question, dear Julian. I think you nailed it in the sense that uh, the whole movement of, of the posthuman, and I call it a movement because there are really uh, many thinkers and, and scientists and activists all over the planet Earth that are rethinking what does it mean to be human. And in this sense, the movement is called post-human because the notion of the human itself has been challenged. And also we have been challenged by the 21st century in the sense that we don't know anymore what does it mean to be human. In this sense, a lot of people are rethinking uh, about uh, this precise question, what does uh, human mean? What does it mean to be human? What is the human condition? And for many of us, the notion of the human is not as comprehensive as we could originally think. Because if you ask a lot of people uh, if they consider themselves human, and if they are homo sapiens, they are going to say yes, and they, many people are not going to see an issue with that. But once you, you start to look into the history of the notion of the human, you're going to uh, realize that the notion of the human is an historical notion. 
What does, what does it mean? It means that uh, at one point it was created and it has, it has not uh, comprehended all the humans, all the people who can be called genetically humans. If you think, for instance, uh, on the history of uh, sexism or uh, racism or ethnocentrism, this becomes very, very clear. I bring uh, often this example because, because it's, um, it really speaks for itself. And I teach at NYU, which is based on American land. And that land, you know, the Americas, is a land that is very uh, unique in really uh, showing the issue with the, the notion of the human. For instance, during the uh, discovery between the commas, because it was discovered by the Europeans of the Americans, um, there was all this debate going on in Spain. We are talking about uh, the 16th century uh, of the common era, about uh, Native Americans. So the question was, are these people human or are they subhumans? And the issue at stake was the fact of slavery, for instance. Can you enslave someone who is a human if you come from a Christian background which was the case, for instance, with the conquistadores and with the people coming from Spain. This is just a simple example to show that a lot of people who nowadays would be considered genetically human have not been considered human. Another example is chattel slavery. Think of the fact that some humans were considered, considered property of other humans. Or think, for instance, of sexism and think of how uh, often, uh, for instance, in the history of, uh, uh, of uh, even going back to the Greeks that are considered really one of the milestones in the history of philosophy, women were considered less than men, less than human, in the sense that they were considered uh, emotional animals, uh, really closer to the animal kingdom than of the human kingdom, which was separated from the animal kingdom. I'm just bringing a couple of examples to say that uh, um, the human itself is an historical construction in which not every human that nowadays is considered human, genetically speaking, has been considered as such. This is one point. And the other point, obviously, is uh, technology and ecology. Think of uh, biotechnologies, think of cyborgs, and think of the pandemic uh, that is going on right now. We are not a closed species. We are not something that can be defined on its own. We are a process that is co-emerging through all these relations with technology, ecology, viruses, non-human animals, biosphere, cosmos, etc., etc., etc. So this is a way to, uh, going back to your question, yes, you are absolutely right. The core question uh, at the center of the discussion on the post-human is, what does it mean to be human? And the answer is, the human is not a closed uh, notion, uh, but it's an open one that is constantly uh, changing, transforming, evolving. Yeah, I think that the foundation of post-humanism is to realize that what is human is, is a really immutable concept. Um, you mentioned at the beginning that this is really relevant now and that we're questioning what it means to be human. Can you talk a little bit more about like why this is so relevant right now and what we might be questioning? Thank you for the question, Julian. Uh, wonderful question. I, um, I really like this quote by uh, African-American feminist who uh, would say that the brave ones are the ones who... Uh, who dare to see. Uh, I'm thinking of black feminism and the idea that, you know, they would uh, 
criticize, for instance, uh, the anti-racist movement, which was mostly focusing on uh, African-American men. And they were also criticizing uh, the uh, feminist movement, which was at the time, we're talking about the the 70s, uh, mostly focusing on on white women. And they were saying, well, uh, some of us are black, uh, some of us are women, some of us are brave. Who are the brave ones? The brave ones are the ones who are uh, brave enough to be able to see from their standpoint and be able to talk about it. And I think that uh, uh, sages and uh, wise people and uh, real philosophers, not, so not just someone who is working with philosophy, but someone who loves wisdom, are the brave ones. Why is that? Because they are the ones who are able to address the history of thoughts and the history of ideas and material thinking and, and the history of, 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 of humans, but they're able to locate themselves in the now and uh, talk about their condition. In the sense, we can study all the things that people said before us, which definitely there is a lot of wisdom there, and we can try to imagine what people are going to say in the future, but no one, no one can speak for us. We need to be the brave ones to readdress what does it mean to be human right now. And right now, to be human means to be able to see what's happening. And what's happening right now is a unique uh, emerging of uh, lines and of relations. And of course, uh, uh, in this uh, co-emerging Technology is taking definitely an, an important impact in the human condition uh, to the point that some people are talking about dataism. Uh, some people like uh, Yuval Harari are saying religions are going to be surpassed by this believing technology. Uh, on some level, to make it simple, uh, we used to think as a species, some of us, some people used to be religious and say, oh God, only God knows. And now some people say, well, only Google knows, just Google it. (laughs) (laughs) So in that sense, we really need to be uh, able to uh, really think of technology in these existential terms, ontological terms. And ontological sounds like a big word, but it's not. It really means, what does it mean uh, to uh, to be, to exist? Onto, come from ancient Greek, means being. Mm? So one side, to me, uh, brave ones are the ones who can rethink what does it mean to, to exist from our own material embodiment, from our own experiences, uh, which means uh, being able to be generous enough to be studying uh, all the other tradition, all the people who came before us, but also being able to talk, being able to share what is our own experience. Because only this way we can change things and only this way we can be truly part of uh, uh, human consciousness. And when I talk about human consciousness, I talk about the consciousness of a species, a collective consciousness, which we're all part of. And when we're talking about consciousness more in general, we're talking about a material consciousness of uh, this planet. We are part, again, of uh, something that is wider, bigger than us as a species. And we cannot forget about it. And now the pandemic is a lot of... Uh, challenges related to it, but there are also some really eye-opening messages that we're getting. We are not something that can think on its own in separation. We need to really uh, address the fact that we are constantly coexisting, not only as humans, plural, eh? think of all the religions, the genders, the, the, the differences between us, 
which constitute what it means to be human, but also through species. And this is really a big message of posthumanism, which is very unique in being so vocal and so passionate about uh, redefining the human in relation to other species. They can be biological, they can be technological, does not matter, but the point is we are not something that is closed uh, within the uh, within one species that can think on its own by itself. Uh, we are open, and this opening comes very clearly with, for instance, how uh, susceptible and, uh, um, and vulnerable we are, for instance, to viruses, and the consciousness and the awareness of not anymore being uh, able to think of the human as something that can be the master of things. We are not mastering anything. We are part of a network, and this network is large, is, is grandiose, is, 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 is uh, all, uh, all uh, emerging, is all, uh, it's, uh, it's expanding, if you think about the universe, and it's really something that we need to address in philosophical terms, in existential terms, and in our daily routine of life. Thank you. I think that that idea of the brave ones is sets the stage for what we're planning to explore on this show, to step back and see things, be able to see what's going on from a historical perspective. Um, but also, that was a great segue into my next question, which is sort of the next tenet of posthumanism, if you will, which is to, to recognize this idea of anthropocentrism, which I don't think you use the word, but that's what you were talking about, uh, which is sort of the idea of human supremacy. It's sort of the default belief of the day that people might not even realize that we have. So what is the view of, of through a post-human lens on anthropocentrism and, and why is it a problem? Thank you so much, Julian. Uh, you are absolutely right. Uh, this is really one of the most, uh, um, I would say, daring, exciting, uh, innovative messages of posthumanism is uh, our goal is to eventually have humankind and i'm talking about beyond a nation beyond borders realize that uh, anthropocentrism is an issue human supremacy is an issue it's not something that is benefiting benefiting us in any way uh, as any type of discrimination is uh, the discrimination is not uh, enriching any one life. Um, so in this sense, when we're talking about discrimination, if you talk about racism, if you're talking about sexism, if you're talking about homophobia, if you're talking about ethnocentrism, if you're talking about ageism, if you're talking about ableism, most people uh, are going to know what you're talking about. When you're going to talk about anthropocentrism, most people are going to give you a kind but uh, blank face and have no idea what you're talking about. I don't think most people would know what that means. Exactly, exactly. And the same goes with speciesism, which is very related to anthropocentrism, which is uh, uh, anthropocentrism is a little more specific about human supremacy. Uh, Speciesism could be really discrimination against any kind of species, even a reverse discrimination. For instance, in an apothetical scenario of AI, take over, and when 
an hypothesis of a future in which artificial intelligence has taken over, maybe humans are going to be discriminated against. So that also would be a case of speciesism, eh? a type of discrimination against specific species. Mm? So, but let's go back to the now. Um, at the moment, we do not have AI takeover scenarios yet. But at the point, at this point in history, uh, most people uh, do not know what anthropocentrism is. Most people do not know what speciesism is. This is something that is our goal to change. I was part of the gender movement in the 90s, and at the time, when you talk about gender, most people had that blank face, kind blank face, and no idea what gender was. Now, this is not the case anymore. Uh, furthermore, uh, at the time, we, when you were talking about sexism, uh, people would actually laugh, think it was funny, and that's not the case anymore. So a lot of things have changed eh, in 20 years. So the goal is uh, giving us some time, uh, some years, hopefully it's not 20 years, hopefully it's less than that, to have people realizing that that's a problem, that we can change, we can change that, obviously, we can always change everything as much as we are understanding why we should and we are willing to do it and uh, make a change. Anthropocentrism, as you were uh, correctly saying, is this idea that anthropos is at the center. Anthropos is uh, a Greek term to define the human. Interestingly enough, if you go back to the Greeks, the term anthropos itself is a term that does not include all the humans of the time. In fact, to be considered an anthropos, which means human, by the Greeks, and we're specifically talking about a group of Greeks living in Athens, uh, anthropos was not really including, for instance, Persians or uh, Phoenicians or Egyptians. In fact, to be considered an anthropos, you had to be uh, Greek. You had to be speaking Greek. You had to be civilized between little commas. So the anthropos was what were those humans who were considered civilized, uh, and the others were considered barbarians. Now, uh, the Greeks would recognize the cultures, but they would see the Greek culture as the, uh, the, uh, the best culture. And this is what you could now define as ethnocentrism. Going back to us, the anthropos, that we now think as a term that just means human, was not coined to embrace all the humans, but already come with an ethnocentric history. This kind of ethnocentric history is going to be seen later on with humanus, Roman for human, where is actually the etymology of who human come from, humanus, eh, come from ancient Rome. At the time, uh, the uh, intellectuals there were very much uh, fascinated by Greek culture. So they all they created this notion of humanitas based on the Greek paideia, which means education, and on anthropos. Mm? So we're going to see now why anthropocentrism already come with this ethnocentric approach uh, in which uh, we see some uh, as better than others and some at the top of a hierarchy. But now going back to your question, yes, uh, posthumanism fully address anthropocentrism as an issue. Human supremacy is a problem that we need to address right now. Yeah, I first encountered the idea of, of, of speciesism um, at, a, at a vegan society meeting several years ago. And I think it's interesting to see 
that on the scale of of history, where back to this idea of of the human, the idea of a human being so mutable over time, um, I think there's some people who are beginning to realize that this definition is can can change and will change, um, and so that's one of the tenets of of posthumanism. From your book, you define philosophical posthumanism. As, it can be defined as a posthumanism, a post-anthropocentrism, and a post-dualism. So I think we're two for three, um, defining the first two. The third is post-dualism. Let's talk about that for a minute. Our Western culture and language make it very easy to draw lines between things like male, female. We've talked about human, animal, or man, machine. Often one of these is seen sort of positively and one negatively. Um, post-dualism sort of throws this whole thinking out the window. What are some other kinds of thinkings and traditions that we can draw on to adopt a post-dualistic mindset? That's a great question. And I think that this is also one of the areas of posthuman studies that really needs more attention, not only from an academic standpoint, but most importantly from an existentialist one. Or let's say existential, because I don't want people to necessarily think that I'm referring to the existentialist philosophical perspective. So in this sense, post-dualism, I think, is really the bright uh, key to be uh, able to access different societies without falling into the old habits of uh, dichotomy, of rigid dualisms. You are right, there are many types of uh, rigid dualisms that have been constructed that have created the history of discrimination. We can think of sexism, as you mentioned, for instance, in uh, many Western societies, not only Western, Eastern as well. Uh, the men, the male, the symbolic male would be the plus, the positive, the active, and the uh, male, the female, the uh, symbolic woman would be the minus, the passive, the negative. Uh, you can think in the history of uh, racism in, for instance, uh, some Western uh, cultures, uh, black would be the minus, white would be the plus. You can uh, look at the history of your Orientalism and the East is the minus, the West is the plus. You can think of the history of uh, uh, for instance, uh, uh, sexual orientation, and in many Western and Eastern countries, uh, the uh, heterosexual would be seen as the plus, and the homosexual would be seen as the minus, etc., etc. Et An example of something that's that's changing right now. Exactly. Exactly. So in that sense, uh, dichotomies has been uh, been constructed in many different ways. Um, now, the challenge here is not just creating a new dichotomy as the good one, posthumans, the brave one against the others, but really focusing on deconstructing the habit of dualism or most likely to say rigid dualism because I like to bring the example of non-rigid dualisms like for instance the Tao they come from ancient Chinese culture according to which uh, the, the, the metaphor here is water and the Tao is constantly changing so it's really two parts but they're constantly reconstructing themselves and it's really not the idea of the digit uh, hierarchy of one better uh, and the, the, the other one is the worst. Now, in general, I do not like so much the idea of uh, uh, dualisms because uh, I see existence as a, a, a pluriverse, as a plurilogue, as a, as a rainbow, as a, 
unlimited number of colors of, of differences that are actually constantly changing. So definitely two is definitely not enough for me to create a whole approach around it. But what I really highlighting here is rigid dualisms that are created in a hierarchy. So in that sense, this is a great challenge. Rethinking a way of existing in a way that does not uh, need uh, rigid dichotomies, that does not need to create an identity in which I think of myself as better than others. Instead, thinking of myself as constantly being co-created by others. I'm being rethinking of all that I've been addressing in my last 10 years through this conversation with you. So you are, are changing and challenging me right now. I'm existing because of the air that I am breathing right now. So this air is creating myself right now. My body is being created by the water that I'm drinking right now and the food that I'm drinking right now. My genetic heritage comes from my uh, parents, for instance, and my uh, epigenetic manifestation comes from the way I exist. So instead of thinking of me as an identity that is in separation from others, now I am myself because I'm not my parents anymore or, or I'm not my partners anymore or I'm not my teachers anymore. The other way, I am my, a river that is constantly being created by all the people that have been part of my life and all of the material that have been part of me that is constituting myself. This is the great challenge. This is the challenge that we need right now. This is a way the posthumanists can not only change us, but can change existence. And this is the way we can reconfigure, remanifesting everything as around us and beyond us. Wow. Thank you, Francesca. That I wish we could just end it right there. But um, before we do that, I wanted to find some terms for our audience that they might encounter on this show. Um, so posthumanism and transhumanism, which I think you've mentioned already. Uh, transhumanism is simpler to understand. It seems to mean human enhancement through technology. And that could be adding technologies to our body to give us physical ability or increasing our mental capacity in some sense, which my smartphone already does. Um, or it could include speculative technologies that may someday let us upload our minds to a better body, or as an upcoming guest we'll have on discuss, uh, regenerative medicine that may let us live for hundreds of years. Um, that's transhumanism, which I think comes up a lot in this discussion and is, is also part of our popular imagination through sci-fi. Posthumanism doesn't show up in the media as often, and someone can live a posthuman life today without any of these gadgets or technologies. How can our audience best understand the difference between transhumanism and posthumanism and why transhumanism comes up in, in our discussion so much. Thank you so much, uh, Julian. Uh, you're absolutely right. Yes, the posthuman is a movement that includes many different approaches. This is on one side is challenging because some people, of course, is, are getting confused by all these different movements. On the other side, this is very exciting because it really means that we are part of a uh, approach which is happening right now. So it's not something that was, you know, created in the 20s and then we are studying about it or it's not something that was uh, thought uh, 6,000 years ago and we are just studying. 
this is something that is co-emerging right now. We are part of that. We are bringing our insights. We are discussing. We are debating. We are that. We are this. This is incredible. But as you as you mentioned, of course, uh, this can be a little bit confusing. So let's uh, absolutely clarify some of these movements. You mentioned two of them. Uh, I would say you are right. These are, in general, the ones that are better known, which are uh, post-humanism on one side and on the other side with transhumanism. Although there are some other movements that we should mention to be fair, for instance, anti-humanisms, uh, new materialisms, uh, object-oriented ontologies, etc., etc., etc. Now, I'm going to keep it simple, and I'm just going to focus on transhumanism and posthumanism. So, as you mentioned, transhumanism is a somehow, say, easy uh, movement because it's very clear what transhumanists want. Transhumanism wants human enhancement. This is why if you go online and if you want to get connected with the big online community, there is definitely uh, much interest on this topic and also much conversation and also much criticism. You're going to find a platform which has been renamed in the last 10 years as Humanity Plus, uh, which is really stand for human enhancement. They are very open to all kinds of technologies and all kinds of sciences. As you mentioned, this includes uh, genetic engineering, uh, virtual technologies, mind uploading, etc., nanotechnology, etc., etc., etc. Now, uh, yes, the media love transhumanism. Also, they love to uh, criticize transhumanism because it's very clear what transhumanists want and it's also very challenging. Should we enhance the human? Should we embrace uh, human enhancement, etc., etc.? On the other side, posthumanism wants something that is also very clear, but it's also definitely less easy to get in uh, simple ways. Eh? On one side, you have posthumanism, so really uh, being able to uh, address the human in a comprehensive way uh, beyond uh, all the discriminatory frames that have been part of human histories. That is also uh, another goal is anthropo- going beyond anthropocentrism, so really deconstructing all the uh, human supremacist approaches and speciesist approaches, also a challenging goal. And the other one is post-dualism, a very challenging goal because it starts with our own behaviors, our th- thoughts, our diets, our way, the way we exist as individuals, as societies, as a species, as part of a planet. So it's uh, on one side I feel is, uh, I would say, deeper on some level because it really has all these layers, but on the other side is definitely uh, more challenging and it's really all-encompassing. It brings you with your existential uh, manifestation in the, fo- in the front line. It's not just about writing about this, but it's also about how do you exist. At least this is my take. My take is going back to the ancient idea of philosophy. Philosophy is a love for wisdom. And in the ancient time, most people who would uh, support some type of philosophy, they would also try to live that kind of philosophy. This is the way that I have been uh, endorsing. But I also have to say that some other people are just theorists and they're doing a great job with theory. Yeah, I think we're, we're getting to that. So you live a very intentional life. Um, you don't eat meat. I don't either, but you don't own a smartphone. You don't buy very, you buy very little in the way of consumer items. Um, we do a meditation before every meal. 
Um, what are some of the principles for living a post-human life day to day? Are these some of them? How do, how do you bring these ideas into your own life? Because I feel like you do that. Thank you so much, uh, Julian, for this question. I would like to start to say that uh, posthumanism is not a doctrine. It is a discipline, but it's a personal discipline in the sense that it starts with the self. And the self is uh, different. And the self is constantly changing. So the most important step for me who I uh, bring what I would call existential posthumanism, although as I mentioned you can be a posthumanist without uh, endorsing existential posthumanism. It, it, that's absolutely fine. You can be a critical posthumanist. You can be a cultural posthumanist. You can be a philosophical posthumanist. These are all terms that are there and you can embrace. In my uh, life, uh, after I realized that posthumanism did change the way I was looking at things, and this is very rare, I've been uh, studying uh, philosophy for many, many years of my life. I started when I was 16 years old, and I'm now 42 uh, years old. So I've been spending more than half of my life engaging with philosophical ideas. Really not so many have changed my life. Some did deeply, though. One of these is posthumanism. When I realized that, I realized that I uh, was uh, um, deeply uh, entangled with posthumanism, not only on an academic level. I realized that posthumanism was much more than that. And then it's when I realized that uh, the way I was existing had to be posthuman for me to be a sincere advocate for posthumanism. I want to say one more time that this does not have to be. Uh, again, posthumanism can just be a theory, can just be a scientific way to uh, address, for instance, uh, your research in the lab or your uh, academic writing. Uh, but again, you can take it a, a step further, absolutely, uh, which is my case. I realized eventually that I felt an, a hypocrite writing about uh, anthropocentrism, uh, writing about uh, post-anthropocentrism or writing about post-dualism. Uh, when I was uh, living in New York, uh, trying to live an ethical life, uh, creating a lot of garbage every week, even if I was trying to recycle, it was still uh, really hard to do it in a way that you could call it ethical. So I've been uh, really addressing this question that you asked me uh, since, uh, um, I would say... I would say in the last five to six years, and I've been working with posthumanists for, I would say at this point is 12 years of my life working in posthumanism. But in, I said in, in the second part of my uh, work with posthumanism, in the second part of my life working with posthumanism, it became clear that it was a personal approach as well, not just an academic uh, way of approaching uh, uh, theory. And in that sense, I would say that um, it comes with ethics. And ethics, if you go back to the etymology, come from Greek, ethos, which means habit. Habit of existence. In this sense, I would uh, advise all the people who are interesting, interested in seeing posthumanism as a discipline for their own uh, life to start with the self. Start with uh, basing on their own manifestation of existence, not on uh, Dr. Ferrando ways. Yes, I am a vegetarian. Sometimes I go vegan, sometimes I don't. Um, yes, I try to... Uh, you know, uh, buy as little as I can. Uh, yes, I try to recycle as much as I can. Uh, yes, I'm trying to go more into a sustainable life where I try to have uh, uh, plants that I can grow and they can uh, live uh, 
on. I try to go uh, uh, and try to sustain myself with a direct connection with the earth. I'm trying all this stuff. You know, no one has to do this. Uh, but this is where my journey has brought me and it's always changing. So I would say the, the way to go about it is... Uh, being completely honest with your, with yourself, being not judgmental with yourself and not say what you should be doing, but say what you are wish, what you want to do, uh, step by step, day by day, uh, hour by hour, minute by minute. See where this journey is taking you and is your life journey. And if posthumans become your life journey, it's going to take you to amazing places that only you are going to bring to the whole conversation. Uh, but again, it, it has to start with the self. Where you're at, there are not uh, rigid rules. There are not rules. There are guidelines that you can pose for yourself to live with. Thank you. I think you're going to be a great guide on this journey through this show. Um, thank you, Francesca. I'll be turning it over to you for future episodes to host. Um, in upcoming episodes, we will talk to a radical life extensionist who's working on a way for humans to live for hundreds of years, a philosopher discussing humans billions of years in the future, a U.S. presidential candidate, a scholar on ancient robots, and much more. Um, so thank you, Francesca. Um, Julian, I would like to thank you so much, and I would like to tell a little more about uh, how much I appreciate you. And uh, also for our audience, uh, I had the honor and the delight uh, to know Julian for many years. And that's when um, our discussions about posthumanism became, uh, I think, uh, became our existential connection. We started to think of arts uh, from a posthumanist perspective and food from a posthumanist perspective and technology from a posthumanist perspective. And about uh, Julian, something that I realized uh, since uh, day one is how your ethics uh, of life were so deeply ingrained in great knowledge about technology because uh, uh, Julian, I should also mention, uh, you are uh, extremely skilled with technology. You study, you are an engineer, uh, you're an engineer, but you're also extremely skilled with uh, appreciation of, uh, of non-human life. You've been a vegetarian since a long time. Eh? I, I know that you told me that even your parents started... In 2007, you know, I think, yeah. Seven, you know, and also when you were a child. And also your openness about openness about existence that you know made you a posthuman since since always you know i think that in that sense we on some level have always been posthuman and uh, it is a label can be useful but it's also a label that can be also confusing we don't need to be claiming ourselves to be posthuman uh, to actually live in a posthuman existence. So in that sense, I also want to tell all our audience that uh, I've been knowing Julian for a long time. He's not just someone that I met recently. Uh, I've been knowing him for, uh, I think, uh, correct, six years. And we've been uh, in this journey um, of the posthuman uh, um, for a long time, Julian was part also of the New York Posthuman Research Group since uh, the first uh, the first meeting. So Julian has been really part of this conversation session for a long time, and he's very skilled with the arts. He's also part of many social movements in New York City. I, I, I would like also to mention some of the work that you have been doing with education, with the museums, with uh, student loans. So if you want to mention some of these, I would be very happy for the audience to know you a little more. So Julian, if you don't mind, maybe tell a little more about sure. your projects. 
Yeah, my my perspective here, I am not a philosopher. I am not a credentialed expert, but I hope I am very curious. And I have found that this topic has been so wide ranging and brings in so many people, especially through our, our post-human research group. It's been everyone from academics and artists who bring in weird objects and, you know, rings that are circuit boards and people who tell stories in weird ways with um, interesting video projects. Um, it seems to bring in a little of everyone and touches on every kind of aspect of life. And so I hope to bring my curiosity through this through this podcast um, about me a little bit. Yes, I'm a software engineer uh, here in New York. Um, when I was living with Francesca in 2014, I also worked, um, did a project for a artist collective called BFA MFA PhD, um, which studies the value of art school. Um, one of those projects was to visualize uh, data about artists in, in the country and see where they go from school to work or um, really to dig into that question of, of what happens with, with $100,000 art degrees. Um, so yeah, I, I also try to be a little cross-disciplinary. I recently did a project with the same collective that was a dance piece um, that I helped with the video on. Um, so, so yeah, I touch on a little bit of everything. And here is posthumanism. Fantastic, Julian. And we should also mention that um, Julian is also part of our global posthuman network, which you can find online, www.posthumans.org. So if you're interested not only to listen to our podcast, but if you'd like, for instance, to be interviewed by us, we have a submission form. You can send your proposal there. You can send a submission for, for instance, topics that you would like to hear about. You can also be part of our, our forums. We have, um, every couple of months, we have forums where people can uh, present. They have five minutes. So this is not just a podcast. This is also a vlog. Absolutely. You can find and on YouTube. Yes. Eh? It's a community, precisely, community, global community, where people from uh, all um, continents, from uh, all many, many different nations. Uh, and uh, so this is really a way to uh, not only learn more, but also to connect with a community that is evolving and we don't have the right view. We are uh, a pluralistic network with many different views. We want to hear your insights. You are part of a species. Your uh, perspective, your experiences, your visions, your insights are precious because it's part of all of us. It's part of our collective uh, consciousness or collective unconscious. So please uh, be aware that we are here for you. Uh, we are not just something that you can listen to. We are something that you can talk to. You can write to us. You can send your proposals. You can be, again, interviewed if you have ideas, if you have projects. Uh, if you also want to share your blog entries, we have a, a blog on our posthumans.org. You can sh something as short as a couple of lines, uh, videos, images, pictures, uh, or longer entries. Entries. Uh, so again, feel free to also to, to send your blog entry for us. Again, you are part of the conversation. We are extremely honored, delighted, fascinated to have you, you, you with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, so that's posthumans.org again, if you want to find out more about the community. So that's it for this first episode of the podcast. Welcome. Um, please press subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using so you'll get these episodes when we publish them, which we plan to be every two weeks on Mondays. 
and share Posthumans with a friend or colleague. And you can point them again to posthumans.org. I'm Julian Boylan here with Francesca Ferrando. Thank you for listening.